0: Good morning. This morning, I want you to open up your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 19 through 20, but we're going to look at the whole uh, passage as a whole. Uh, as we look at Christians and the law. Last week, we, we looked at Christ and the law. This week, we're going to look at Christians in the law. Uh, D.L. Moody puts it this way, God being a perfect God had to give a perfect law, and the law was given not to save men, but to measure them. That's a great quote. The law was given to us to measure us, and I will posit that there's two ways primarily that we ought to look at the law in the way that it measures us. One as non-Christians and one as Christians, which I think is going to be very helpful for you as we look at this passage. The first way is to teach us, to instruct us. Uh, Historically, uh, we understand that most Christians, almost all Christians, believe that the law does this. It informs us like a mirror informs us on how we look. The law informs us how we measure up. And it shows us and teaches us that we just do not measure up to God. We all fall short of the glory of God. That is just staple of the Christian faith. The second way is very important in regard to the Christian walk. So the second way that we understand the law as it relates to Christians is it shows us how we are walking with Christ. You ask the question, well, how do I know I'm walking with Christ? In what objective way do I know that I am fulfilling the law of Christ, fulfilling the commands of Christ? Uh, Many of us would ask questions like, Uh, How do I know that I'm loving others? Isn't that the command to love other people? Well, how do we know that? Because of the law of God that teaches us what it is to love, what it is to hate. And so for us, as we look at the law, as it measures us, even as Christians, it shows us how we are walking with Christ. We'll jump into some implications of the law, how it does apply and how it doesn't apply, uh, and how we work. Uh, not to earn salvation, not to uh, create a justified position before God, but as we work for Christ because he's given us a new heart that can fulfill his commands. And so as we do that, I want you to at least sum it up this way in your preaching point. It's on the top of your outline. That it is Christ's righteousness in us that produces obedience from the inside out concerning all that Jesus commands and even comes with a warning to those who reject absolute obedience to the commands of Christ. We're going to see all of that here in verses 19 through 20. So what I'd love to do is start at the bottom of the text. I believe if you look at verse 20, it's going to help us understand verse 19 uh, in a way where you will be able to apply it with great conviction. And so if you look at verse, 19, or verse 20 there, you have Jesus... Saying on the Sermon of the Mount, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, even to you and I, it says, unless you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. At first glance, that's pretty big, isn't it? It's pretty harsh. It sounds a little bit condemnatory a little bit futile. I mean, if we think about the the scribes and the Pharisees, they studied the law, right? They kept the law meticulously. And we have to surpass, to exceed their righteousness if we even want to enter heaven. Because it says right there, we have to exceed their righteousness to get there, which means they ain't even making it. So there has to be something greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, something greater than external obedience to the law if we ever want to see the inside of the kingdom of God or the presence of God in Christ as he reigns. Important. At first glance, it seems pretty high, and it is. A lot higher than you and I can go. But Jesus makes clear what he means for us here. When we think about the scribes, when we think about the Pharisees, which you've got to understand these two groups, you don't have to understand them perfectly. I don't understand them perfectly. And I think when you read uh, commentaries and you read dictionaries, you're going to find that not a lot of people understand the Pharisees and the scribes perfectly. They don't understand them completely because just like you and me, there's a lot of different beliefs that float around in a lot of different places with a lot of different kinds of people. And, but what you can't understand about the scribes and the Pharisees, they were doers of the law, they were teachers of the law, uh, they also took God's law and they tried to shrink it down to something that they could fulfill and so you need to understand it that way because as you see Jesus over and over again through the next few uh, passages over the next couple of months you're going to notice that Jesus clarifies and repositions the law back to where it should be because where they want to say hey we got to follow the law but we nobody can follow the law perfectly so we need to we need to manage it in a way where we all can fulfill it so that we can we can become self-righteous through the way that we apply the law. Because the Pharisees, they were concerned with external obedience to the law. Right? External obedience is what the Pharisees lived for and strived for. That if the Bible says it, the Torah says it, the Pentateuch says it, the law of Moses says it, I'm, I'm going to do it with all of my strength. I'm just going to do it. That's, that's their idea. And they... they, they force everyone to do that and more so. Actually, matter of fact, the Pharisees were uh, notorious for adding laws that would keep you from breaking more laws. And so they would heap so many laws upon people and, and call them to external obedience to the law. The reality here is these Pharisees and these scribes, they loosened God's commandments. God has set an expectation here for righteousness, and he made it clear in the law and the prophets. But what the Pharisees and the scribes have done is they had, they had loosened them, right? They had loosened them. And that's really, in, even if you look at verse 19 and Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that can be uh, also rendered loosens, that's the problem that the Pharisees had. They would loosen the laws. They would try to figure out a way to get that law down to a place where they could do it. And here you have them loosening God's commandments and lowering them to a feasible place for them to uphold. As a matter of fact, you can see that even as you look at the next couple of passages in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. There you, you have Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Right? There's your command, do not murder. But what we need to understand is the heart of the command and not just the command itself, okay? The heart of the command is what Jesus is always pointing to, which is the fulfillment of the law to love one another, right? Understand where we're going here, even in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament says, do not murder. So if I do not murder, and I do not lie, and I do not commit adultery, and I do not do these things, I'm going to be good with God. Well, that's what a Pharisee would think, and I don't want you to be a Pharisee. Because the reality is, is if the bar to love one another is just don't murder people, that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty low bar, bar for the law. But that's exactly how the Pharisees thought, right? I didn't murder nobody. I didn't actually lie. Because it is actually feasible not to murder and day by day with accountability not to lie. Those are actually feasible things for you to do. Now, we understand the heart of these laws, however. But Jesus is reestablishing. He didn't change them. A lot of people say, well, Jesus is, is heightening the law. No, no, no. He's getting us back to the heart of the law. And what he does there in verse 22 is exactly that. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Right, that's the important part. That's the heart of the law of murder. The heart of the law of the murder goes all the way back to Genesis with Cain and Abel. Right, if we want to talk about sin and we want to talk about the righteousness in the sight of God, all you got to do is look at Cain and Abel. Cain did not sin the first time when he murdered, he sinned way before murder. He hated Abel. His heart was against Abel and his heart was against God. You see, this was a heart problem all along. And even when we look at these, we need to recognize that Jesus is getting to the heart of the problem. The thing that we always wanna do is say, well, I measure up, I didn't murder anybody. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't commit adultery, you know, I didn't lie, I, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't do any of those things. But the problem is, if we look at the heart of the person, we recognize that external obedience to outward laws do not measure the heart of a man. God measures the heart of a man, and you know your heart. And if we look at the measuring stick of the law, what we recognize is that we just certainly don't measure up to the law of God. We recognize that our hearts are wicked above all things, desperately sick, who can know it is what scripture says. And this is the same way that the Pharisees lived. They disregarded the point of the law and made improper distinctions. They created legalistic boundaries in the hopes of creating some kind of false righteousness. But that same false righteousness, Scripture says, will send you to hell. Now, I can show you that in Matthew 23. If you can flip there in your Bible to Matthew 23, we can see how Jesus is laying out the Pharisees' self-righteousness in the way of multiple woes, where he gives these woes to the Pharisees. And this is what he says. I'll skip around there in the chapter 23 from verses 1 to uh, 26. And Jesus said to the crowds and the disciples, that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, right? The seat of the law, right? The seat of judgment. And Jesus says, and this is important when you come to the law, right? He says this, so do and observe whatever they tell you. That's important, right? That's how Jesus looked at the law. Do and do everything they tell you to do. Observe whatever they tell you to do, but don't do the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Legalists, right? meritorious acts that bring them closer to God and while condemning other people be, even, because uh, the Pharisees recognize that the heart of the law is broken, and, but they want to heap these burdens on other people saying, you're not going to make it, you're not going to make it. This idea of legalistic idea of our works that would lead to some kind of merit before God and before others, which is a really important aspect of a Pharisaical worldview. Uh, Go down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So they're creating, uh, they're taking these laws that God has designed to bring people to a knowledge of sin and bring people to a place where they can commune with God and the Pharisees take them and contort them and manipulate them in a way where they slam the kingdom of heaven on anybody who would want to commune with God. Hypocrites, enemies of God, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Verse fifteen: Hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, right? That is a convert right, to Judaism, to make a single proselyte. And when you beco- and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. I mean, Pharisees think they're doing God's will and Jesus is coming to them and said, no, you have manipulated God's will so bad that even the people that you convert to Judaism, you do not bring to God. You actually remove them from God. You separate them so far from God that you make them just as much a child of hell as yourselves. And then verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed. And self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee! First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Did you see here at the end, Jesus? Uh, Jesus uh, puts a location on the problem with the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't an external obedience to the law. The problem was the inside. The problem was the heart. And the heart of the new covenant is a change on the inside that comes to the outside of a person. The law. The Mosaic Law, and it, and it's particularly as the way that the Pharisees saw it, was something that we did on the outside. I can cover up the dirty on the inside by just being good on the outside. And that's, an, that's a legalistic, right? That's self-righteousness. And it's this idea of self-righteousness that we see here in the text that Jesus outright condemns and makes clear that there is no amount of man-made self-righteousness that will enter the kingdom of heaven. None of it. And because of that, we need to sum it up this way in point number one. We need to eradicate legalistic ideas of righteousness. We need to eradicate legalistic ideas of righteousness. I put this here because it's in the text. I think in our culture, for the most part, right, our culture doesn't have a problem so often with the idea of legalism, especially uh, those who, ha- who are saved. I think that we all often lean on the side of grace, but there is still room in the text to make sure that you are not creating any legalistic barrier to God for people that you yourself understand that there is no good works that you can do, there is no self-righteousness that you could obtain to receive any meritorious entrance into the kingdom. No entrance, there is nothing that you can flash, no card that you can flash uh, when you enter into the gates that say, hey, this lets me in because uh, I got all my gold stars while I was down there, all right, so let me in. All right, I get all my badges because I went to Adventure Club and I get to go, and I get in now. we we got to eradicate any legalistic ideas of righteousness because if my righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then I understand that there's nothing that I can do on the outside to uphold any of the commandments that brings me into the kingdom of heaven. Because if the scribes and the Pharisees can't get into heaven by doing all the right things, then I, by all means, would be the least of any of the scribes and Pharisees when it comes to keepers of the law, because they could keep the law better than than almost anyone could keep the law. However, when we look at the text of Scripture, and we look at what Jesus has come to do, And if the outworking of self-empowered righteousness can't save me, then what can? Scripture tells me that it's the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Philippians 3.9 says that that having a righteousness that is us, that we have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that depends on us trusting that Christ is our righteousness. Trusting that Christ has imputed his righteousness on us, that way we stand before God as not people who have done the law so well that we, are, that we are innocent of any sin and we are not guilty of anything, that we would stand before God of some work on our own, getting our way into heaven, recognizing that when we look at the commands and we look at the heart of the commands, we recognize that we all fall short. And that's why that we recognize that verses Like Philippians 3, 9 are so important to the heart of our faith that we have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. We have a righteousness that is not our own. As Luther would call it, an alien righteousness. That we have something that doesn't belong to us. It came from the outside of us and it's come into us through Christ Jesus. That's our righteousness. Is through him. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That depends on you trusting. and Listen to me here. Not just you believing in the facts of things. I need you to listen to me. You're not just believing in the facts of the Bible. Pharisees believed in the facts. That's what they did. They just, I do the facts. It's the facts right there. Don't murder, not murder. Don't lie, don't lie. These are the facts. It's not just mentally assenting to the facts of Scripture. It's trusting that Scripture points to Jesus. That as Jesus stands before the Father... He is your advocate, that he stands between you and the Father to clothe you in his innocence that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. That's the imputation of righteousness. You don't just believe that to be true generally. You have to understand that you have to trust that. When you stand before God, not everyone in the world, those who trust, those who put their trust in Christ, as they stand before God, that they would be deemed righteousness based, or righteous based upon no deed of their own. Right. That's contrary, because I want people, especially if you're new to the faith, as you come in here, it's not just as everyone stands before God. Christ is just gonna immediately at that point clothe them in righteousness and all the people who have ever lived are gonna be righteous in the sight of God. That's not what it means to believe that Christ gives you righteousness. To understand what it means that Christ gives you righteousness, it's the fact that as you've lived your life here, you've placed your trust in the fact that there's nothing that you can do to earn a place in God's kingdom that it is given to you as you've turned from your sin and placed your trust in Christ. That it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Okay? you got to understand that because if you don't, verse 19 is going to be very foreign to you. But if you understand this concept biblically, verse 19 is going to make so much sense. you got to understand that. you got to understand that Christ's righteousness fulfills the law. According to Romans 8, 1 through 5, this is a very important summary of this passage. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to talk about the end of the law for the Christian? It's not that the moral laws, right, of the Old Testament don't apply to you. They very much do. As a matter of fact, you go murder someone, you go commit adultery, you even go do those things in your heart and see how, and you tell me how it's going to impact your home and your family and your own life. It'll impact you very much so. There are so many consequences of you, even in Christ, when you break commands, okay? Okay. You go murder, you will go to jail. You will destroy your family. There will be so many consequences here on this side of heaven, so many societal consequences of your sin, right? Isn't that true? Here's the difference. In Christ Jesus, even though you fail the law and you do not measure up, your trust is in Christ that he has fulfilled the law on your behalf because he has. Now, as you stand before God the Father in heaven, then there is therefore no condemnation for you. Not saying that you're not going to have consequences in this world when you sin. And I think that's where so many Christians get it wrong. The law doesn't apply to me. You go tell a bunch of lies and you tell me how much the laws of God don't apply to you here. It's going to ruin your whole life. You're going to be living in so much sin that you can sit here and you can say you're a Christian. But when we get to verse 19, you're going to recognize how we can as Christians say things like the law doesn't apply to me. When Jesus says very much it does. Here's where the law ends for the Christian. You can't be condemned by it, by God any longer because it's fulfilled in Christ. Not that it has no good outside for our lives as it directs us and as it leads us to walk well with the Lord. But it has no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness required by the law, might be fulfilled. Right? That's what you got to understand about the law. The law required righteousness, perfect righteousness. So everyone who comes face to face with the law right, it's like, uh, it's, like be, it's like being judged, right, whatever show you're in, whatever talent show you're in, you come up and you, you got to sing, okay, and only the perfect singers are going to make it, okay, and everyone gets up here and everyone sings a song and the judge, who is the perfect singer of all singers, looks and every single contestant that comes up and says, I'm the perfect singer and they sing and they put a thumb down and say, you failed because you're not a perfect singer, okay. Fill in the blank for the illustration. The reality is, is that's what the law does. The law condemns. The law condemns because it shows you that the bar is way too high and that there had to be a requirement that met the standards of the law. You want to talk about why Jesus was necessary? There had to be a requirement that met the standard of the law. That is why Jesus is necessary for you to place your trust in because there's no one that has ever lived and ever will live that measures up to the law of righteousness but Christ, and as you place your trust in the fact that Jesus came up on stage, so to speak, in this illustration, that is terrible, all right, that when he did it, it was perfect, and the judge and the law said, good to go. And everyone who wants to follow that and trust in that to be your position, good to go. Not because you, you failed. You, you got voted off the island. You are the weakest link. You're gone. But if you want to trust in Christ, You made it. No condemnation for you. No condemnation. But the righteous requirement of the law had to be fulfilled. And it must be fulfilled. And that's why trusting in Christ matters because when you stand before God in eternity, there's going to be a reality that you're going to have to come face to face with. That is, as God looks and says, on what grounds do you come before me? On the grounds of the works of the law or on the grounds of the finished work of Christ? And if you have any answer but the finished work of Christ, you have not met the requirement of the laws of God. But the good news for Christians, for those who would turn from their sin and they would place their trust in the Christ. That we are made righteous to God through Christ. And that's what Romans 3.22 says. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You want to be righteous? You want to to make sure that the standard of righteousness uh, is met? You're going to have to trust that Christ has met it. And for those who have faith and trust that Christ has, you then receive the righteousness of God. I love it. It's the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of Hayden. And that's so important for you to understand. Whether or not you're young or old in here, you need to get this concept really concrete in your mind. I come to God and I don't appeal upon my own righteousness. I appeal to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and I trust in that. Think about this. I was having a conversation with a wonderful couple this week. I mean, you think about this. You stand before God. Think about how much faith and trust you have to have that Christ is your righteousness. Think about this. For the rest of your life here, you're like, I can't fulfill the law, although I know that in Christ there's a place for that, and I'll, and I'll show you in a minute. Uh, but I know that I can't get to eternity any other way. But I know that like a freight train coming to the end of the line, I'm getting, I'm getting closer, to, closer to death every day, and I don't know when the end of the line is for me. This is the exercise of faith in Christ. That you know that every day you're saying, no, I trust that Christ is going to get me there. I trust that Christ is going to get me there. Because what's going to happen is you're going to stand before the God of the universe and you're going to have to come to this real conclusion in your life when you're standing there before the throne of God and you have to say, if, if not Christ, there's no chance. Right? If, if it wasn't for Jesus, I'm not going like, think about how much faith that is. Because the other half of that is, got to work so hard here. I mean, that's, that's the foundation of most faith in the world, almost every faith. i got to do so much here so that I can have so much faith in myself that when I stand before God, i got this trail of goodness behind me that God would look at it and he would accept it and let me in. Do you see that? That's legalism, and that's all other faith. But we, on the other hand... Have no trail of good. As a matter of fact, our theology says that the best I have is dirty rags to God. Paul says, I count it as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And so we go to heaven with a trail of rubbish behind us. And we say, I get to come in because Jesus said I could. That's it. You want to talk about God's righteousness? That's God's righteousness. I get to go because Jesus said I could. But you got to make sure that you trust in the Christ who said that those who place their trust in Him can come. You got to make sure that your trust is actually in Him and not in yourself, and not in the world, and not in the pleasures of the world, and not in your own life or anyone else's apart from Jesus Christ. That could be a sermon in itself. And, and here's and here's really what it, your life on this side of salvation and on this side of eternity, is really summed up in Ezekiel. You want to talk about life on this side of salvation and on this side of eternity? That's right here. That's the life you're living right now. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. You should know this. It's, it's the promise of the new covenant that's coming. Okay, It's the promise of the new, the new covenant, the covenant of Christ. It says there in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You want to talk about works of the law? Your works of the law are all done with a hard heart. All done with a heart that is not for the Lord will not be accepted before God. You want to talk about the heart of the law? The heart of the law is not murder. The heart of the law is hate that leads to murder. Why can you not fulfill the law? Because your heart is hardened. You have a heart of stone, which is exactly what Ezekiel and the prophets are talking about here and exactly what Jesus is getting to in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to give you, there in verse 26, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you Listen to this. You want to know why nobody outside of Jesus Christ can fulfill the heart of the law? Here it is. I just said it, but here it is in Scripture. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The very nature of your being cannot uphold God's law. The only way that your life could ever be righteous before God is if God gave you a new heart. Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, says that you have to be reborn. You have to have a new heart. You have to be reborn because the you that is you is never getting there apart from the new heart and the rebirth of knowing Christ and being saved by faith through him. And he says, and this is, this is where we get started. You got to know verse 27 in Ezekiel 36. If you're going to understand Verse 19 in Matthew 5 that we're about to jump into. So zoom in right here. I will put my spirit within you. Listen to this. I will cause you. Did you hear that? I will cause you. Did you see that? I want to say it one more time because the rest of the sermon is going to be about causing you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There can be no understanding of a biblical gospel that creates an antinomian, big word, uh, that creates a Christian who believes that the law is no more and that the law is no good and that I'm anti-law. I am free to do as I please because Christ lives in me. That is not biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, Paul refutes that in Romans chapter six, verse one, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? And on the, on the other part of that, so many well-meaning Christians say, well, we ask the question, well, why do I follow, why do I follow Jesus' commandments? Because you, just, you do it as a favor to him. It's your favor to God. Your favor to, to him? That's, that's what you're doing? No, no, no. Not according to Ezekiel. That is the heart that he has placed in you and will cause you to walk in his ways. It, it will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. So, this isn't like, well, you know, quid pro quo. You, know, you do it for me, I do for you. No, that's doing something for free, isn't it? No, that's like reciprocity. You do for me, I do for you. That's not what this is. This is a, I have changed you from the inside out, and you will be changed from the inside out, and you will be caused to, on the outside, change because I have caused the inward change, and it will also cause the outward change. Did you see that? Did you see what you added to that? Nothing. He did it, therefore you will do it. Did you see that? He did it, therefore you will do it. is the rest of verse 19. So important. Because in light of the new covenant, what we just read there in Ezekiel, you see it in Jeremiah, see it in Isaiah. We see that Christ empowers us to obey. And through that lens, verse 19 makes a lot of sense. Now look at verse 19. First half of verse 19, Matthew 5. Therefore, whoever relaxes, remember that's the Greek word, loosens, right? Whoever, whoever loosens one of the least of these commandments, which is what the Pharisees were guilty of. You remember? Are we fallen That they were guilty of loosening these things. And Jesus says, whoever relaxes or loosens one of the least of these commandments that we understand as the moral law, right? We have to understand it's the moral law. Christ has fulfilled All of the laws, including the moral laws, but remember, all the laws flow from which laws? Moral Moral laws, right? You remember this from last week. I hope you did. You wrote notes down last week. Moral law. All flows from the moral law. We understand that Christ has fulfilled all of the laws. Therefore, we are no longer condemned even by the moral law, but since all of the other laws have found their complete fulfillment in Christ in the sense that he has abolished the need for us to do anything with those, even in our practical daily living, she has, right? That the moral law applies to us not in light of condemnation but in light of still walking with the God of the universe who has given us a new heart that will cause us to walk in his moral laws. Are we we on the same page so far? And whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I need you to pay attention to that verse because I don't want you to skip over that verse. I don't want you to allegorize this verse. I don't want you to metaphorically do gymnastics around this verse. I want you to read the verse, and I want you to look at it. Whoever relaxes or loosens one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Here's Here's a good point of application. You don't want to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, do you? You don't. Anybody want to be called? Anybody want to get there and say, hey, "I'm least. I'm a what is what is in the NFL? I am Mr. Irrelevant. Okay, I am the last pick. Okay. Uh, in the same way that you don't want to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus doesn't want you to loosen the least of the commandments. So that same way you would feel about saying, "I don't want to be the least in the kingdom of heaven." Jesus is saying, "I don't want you to loosen the least of these." Right? It gives you a little bit of an emotional uh, equivocation or emotional parallel to say, yeah, you know what? Jesus does care. Just like I care, Jesus cares. Right? I don't want to loosen those things. Right? We must ensure that as we teach the Word of God and as we live it out, that we're not loosening anything that Jesus commands, even down to the least of Jesus' commandments. I want you to sum it up this way. Christians should have a healthy fear of invalidating any of Jesus' commands. You need to fear invalidating any of Jesus' commands. And I'm going to tell you what, if we could do this in our, as Christians, it's so important because we have, we've created a, a faith with this hyper grace focus that we miss the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you hear me? We miss the heart of the gospel. By saying things like, it's all okay, right? All of that, is, all of sin in your life is okay as a Christian. God has created you to be a people for his own possession, right? That's what he did, that he could commune with you and that you would commune with him. Now, what does sin do to your communion with God? Even in Christ, severs it in a lot of ways, doesn't it? How can you say that you're a people for God's own possession if you keep choosing things that God doesn't choose? How can we keep saying in Christ that we are a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he's prepared beforehand that we would do them, that if we also, as we look at the moral laws of God and we literally volitionally break them every day, could we really say that I'm obeying the heart of the law of Christ? The heart of the law of Christ was to bring you into fellowship with God. Right, That's the heart of the law that you would commune and love Jesus, that you would walk with him. But every time that we choose sin volitionally, we're choosing not to love Jesus. We're choosing not to follow Jesus. We're choosing to follow things that God abhors and that Jesus died for. Do you see? We can be just like Pharisees in the way that we say that the moral law doesn't matter in Christ just because Christ did it, right? Do you see how, do you see how that, 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 right there, kind of on, on equal plane, that I will say, well, the law, it doesn't matter because the law is fulfilled. Like the, that, the, the letter of the law, Christ did it. That means there's nothing there for me to do. The same way that the, the Pharisees on this side would say, I fulfill all the laws by the letter, but not by the spirit. I don't fulfill the heart of the law. Over here, it's like Christ has saved you that you would no longer walk in sin, but yet you just say, well, I can do this now since, you know, Jesus did it for me. That's not the heart of the gospel, you understand. The heart of the gospel is that Christ has saved you from slavery unto sin, that you would be holy the Lord's, and you would be fellowshipping in right relationship with him every day. And guess what? Then when you fail, see Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you see that proper relationship there? That Even as your pastor, I didn't cross over into legalism because you're not going to merit it. But I also didn't cross over into antinomianism saying that there is no law because that both of those are heresies of the Christian faith, right? I can't be antinomianist. I can't believe that there is no law in, in, as being a Christian. I can't say that I can do whatever I want now because I'm a Christian. But I also got to make sure I understand that there is no way that I'm ever going to merit my way to God. But... God give me a new heart and a new nature. He's going to cause me to walk in his ways. Then therefore the law, even as I told you at the very beginning of this sermon, shows us how we're walking with Christ. As I'm breaking the laws of the commands, the moral laws, it shows me you're not walking with Christ. You're not walking with Christ. You're not walking with Christ. And it gives you a conviction from the Holy Spirit to say I need to turn from my sin and I need to walk with Christ as he empowers me and causes me to walk in his ways, being careful to obey all of his rules. Did we see that? Did we see, I hope we saw, did you see the consistency in biblical doctrine that that helps us understand why it matters how we live? That's just here, and now I got so much more to say. This is a, is a lot here. The Bible also something for you to understand, makes a distinction between weighty commands and lighter commands of the law. Right? And this is another thing that we want to do in our faith to say, no, 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 all, all, all equal. Okay? In one sense, sure. All sin is sin, right? But we got to understand that the Bible makes a distinction between weighty commands and lighter commands. Can I give you an example for that in the New Testament? Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. You can go there or just jot it down. Matthew 23, 23 is a great example of this. Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. All right? Those are garden plants. Right? Those are, those are things that you probably still use. And according to the law, they had to give of that. They had to give 10%. And so it wasn't just that the Pharisees were giving 10% of what they made, 10% of their crops, 10% of their animals. I mean, the garden herbs that were on their windowsill, they were like 10% of that, okay, 10% of that, and 10% of that. You see the humor in this, right? There is some humor in this. That they took even the garden plants on their windowsills, they would go pick 10%, and they would hop over, and they would take it before the temple. All of those things, even to the, that small giving of the garden plant they would do and this is what jesus says but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law you do all those little things all the way to the garden plant on the windowsill all the way to the apple pie out of the oven but you neglect the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness what's more important tithing your garden plant or justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Be careful how you answer it, because Jesus does it for you. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Did you see that? Jesus said, you ought to still, by all means, do the law. By all means, go pick your garden plants and go give those unto the Lord. But you ought to do those and not neglect the others. All of it. But the problem was, is that they, they did. They took advantage of others, the Pharisees. They manipulated people. They heaped undue burdens out on other people's lives. They neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. But by, they went over there and they picked their plants and they gave them to the Lord. Letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Completely broke the heart of the law. And what does that mean for us? The danger for us is twofold, right? Even as you and I as a Christian, even though that even the Pharisees, they were under, you understand the sacrificial law still at, at the time because Jesus had not died yet. The point is still here for us to make very clearly, and it's twofold for the Christian. On one hand, some disregard like the Pharisees weightier laws like mercy, justice, and faithfulness. There are some people who do that. I find, that in our church, not so many people, right? Not, this, this isn't so many people, although this is some people. If this is you, understand that you can take one and one. What Jesus just said there applies to you very clearly. Right? You cannot do these less things and not do the weightier things that God commands, like loving and, well, I'll get there in a minute. But on the other hand, this is, this is where a lot of us sit, right? On the other hand, many more of us deal with the other half of these commands. Listen, look at me. The ones the world won't condemn, but the ones that Jesus says are still important. There are so many of us who say, well, you know, I want to love other people. You know, I want to, you know, I want to, do, I want to do the big things, right? I want to do the big things. And that's how so many of us, I think, we miss so much on our Christian faith. I like the big, the big three. Like, whatever the big three are, I want to do those things, right? The things that, that I just know that I know that I know. But yet, when it comes to the other things that faithful Christians do because Jesus says to do it, but yet the world understands that you don't. That applies to you too. That you ought to have done the big things without neglecting the others as well. Giving, serving, forgiving others, right? Forgiving others, that's a big one, isn't it? Well, you need to forgive others. That's literally a law of Christ, to forgive other people. Well, you understand, we're not perfect. That's not what Jesus says here. You ought to do them... Because he's empowered you to do them. He's caused you to walk in his statutes. And he's caused you to be careful to obey all his rules. And just because you say you haven't murdered someone, you're not forgiving people. You're breaking the moral law of God. And if you have a new heart, you're not going to do that for very long without receiving the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your church calling you to repentance. And then, therefore, you should be able to come to repentance because you have a new heart, because it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So, therefore, you will walk according to the ways of Christ, not because of your own power, but because of him who lives in you. Did you see that? Verse 19, very important for the Christian. Okay? Things like giving and serving one another. All of these things. Like, for instance, you know what? I'm the pastor. The Bible says it. Okay? (laughs) Like giving. That's a big one, isn't it? Just to let you know, we're not financially hurting at all. But there's so many of us that we know, well, giving's not a public thing. Giving's a private thing. But yet you know that Jesus still commands us to give and be generous, to expand the mission and the ministry of the church. And yet we say, well, that's that's such a small thing. It is a small thing. But this is why so many of us don't follow Christ faithfully, because we diminish the small things and make them small, and we just say, well, I just want to do the big things. That way, when I stand before God, the big things are taken care of. But that's, that's exactly what verse 19 is getting you away from. Following Christ is following Christ wholeheartedly. That means whether it's the big laws of justice and mercy and faithfulness, or if it's giving, serving, and uh, forgiving others, all those things, God, Jesus says, this is what you do because you're a Christian. And there is no reason that you don't do them. You're not gonna do them perfectly and therefore you will not be condemned, but you still must do them and you will be empowered to do them in Christ Jesus. Are we all on the same page there? Okay, that's verse 19 in a nutshell. And we should fear invalidating any of Jesus' commandments. And I see so many Christians who do that. We read the New Testament and people say, well, it's like, don't, well, nothing. What we should do there first is say, okay, gotta look at that. Gotta gotta measure my life with that. Gotta look at that and say, that that's for me. Right? Not invalidating away why I'm not doing things that scripture teaches me to do, but instead say, look at me. I gotta I gotta figure out how it's Christ has given me a new heart. He's empowered me to live for him. I'm gonna look at the Bible, I'm gonna apply it to me. Right? This and this does get to the heart of cultural Christianity, doesn't it? We wanna minimize Jesus' commands. Right, we want Jesus' commands to to require less of me throughout the week. So whatever I can do to get Jesus and get everything else too, I want that. But Jesus makes it clear here in verse 19: Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do them will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Right? This is that same. Com- this is e- equivalent to that same command where Jesus says, uh, "Come to me, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy." Well, you could be, how is a burden light? Because a burden's a burden. And how is a a yoke easy when a yoke is a yoke that puts burden on my shoulders to do? Because there's still something for you to carry. It's called a cross. And there's still somewhere for you to walk, and that is out your faith. And in what ways is it not going to be burdensome and heavy laden? See Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit within you, I will cause you to walk in my ways, and I will cause you to be careful to obey my my rules. Did you see that? Why will it not be burdensome and heavy laden? Because it's Christ who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure so that you will do these things. And when you don't, see Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Did you see just the consistency here that I am in great fear that so many Christians in church can't make these clear distinctions about Christians and the law? and how we live for Christ. We're no longer condemned by failing the law, but it doesn't give us excuse not to strive through the heart that Christ has given us with the power that he has instilled in us to run the race and not grow weary. All right. We should have a healthy fear to ensure that we obey Jesus. The warning is clear as well. I mean, right there. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't want you to take that as a metaphor. You should take that as literal as Jesus says it right here. Because there is an absolute clear warning for the Christian. But on the other side of that coin, there's a real eternal benefit of submitting to all the commands of Jesus. Look at the rest of verse 19. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We got to come to grips with a very real certainty in our Christian faith uh, that honor in the kingdom has varying degrees based on how one responds to God's written revelation. Now, did you see why verse twenty was a big deal? Okay, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no therefore no condemnation that me that any amount of law keeping would get me into eternity. Therefore, any amount of law keeping in Christ Jesus would keep me out of heaven. Okay, do you see that? If I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ. I'm going. But there is something that Jesus says here in way of verse 19 and verse 20 that helps us see something. That we have to understand that there are varying degrees of honor in God's kingdom based on how one responds to God's written revelation. Again, salvation is gifted based on no one's work of their own. Honor and reward is a gift in part based on one's handling, at least in this text that we see, of God's law. You see that? It's very clear. Whoever does the law of Christ and teaches others to do the law of Christ, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. D.A. Carson makes explicit in this commentary on this passage. He says this, that ranking in the kingdom turns on the degree of conformity to Jesus' teachings as that teaching fulfills the Old Testament revelation. His teaching towards which the Old Testament pointed must be obeyed. Did you see that? In a very real way, the honor that God bestows upon his children who handle his word with care will be bestowed honor in, in some way, in some form, position based on our following of Christ's commands. That's the reality of the text. And there may be some people here, I don't like it. I don't, I, I'm not concerned if you like it. I'm concerned that Jesus says it and that we do it. Because here's, a, there's a there's not I don't have enough time, but I can just even shadow box with you, I guess, for a minute. Like, okay, in what ways would you be, uh, if we look at that text, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven? Are they just going to be talking about you before they get there? And then when you get there, they're going to be like, I can't talk about them anymore, now they're here. Okay, right? Is it some way like, oh, well, you be, they'll look at you down while you're here, but, but not there? Uh, like, what I mean, we have to think, what are the actual possible interpretations of this text? And then what's the actual contextual understanding of what Jesus is saying here? My laws do not change. We don't abolish the laws. I have not come to take them away. I've come to fulfill them. And when it comes to the moral law, whoever relaxes one of these, there is actual real consequences. Those consequences, because of Christ, do not exclude you from eternity, do not exclude you from being with God for eternity, but does in a real way as you minimize and truncate and mitigate the law of Christ does have eternal consequences for you as you are in heaven with God. Brings me to this last point that you need to write down. You need to desire an honorable position in God's kingdom. You should desire an honorable position in God's kingdom. Matthew 19 28 through 30, it shows you in a couple of these passages uh, towards the end of the sermon that, that, there, that Jesus, number one, does not condemn an attitude, an idea that there are varying degrees of honor in heaven. Uh, and secondly, he actually clarifies to his disciples how they ought not to try to pursue honor in the kingdom of heaven. The first one, Matthew 19, 28 through 30, Jesus said to them, In Matthew 19, 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, who is he talking about? The disciples, okay? Which is always the first thing that we got to think about. Well, the disciples were real people, weren't they? They were real people just like you and me. That Jesus will say, I'm bestowing honor upon you, that you will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the tribes of Israel. Is that honor? Right? Is that, is that honor, okay? Is that a privilege that Christ gifts to them? Okay, it is, isn't it? Even though they're real people on real planet Earth, they're going to have to receive real honor and real benefit for following Christ. Now, did they follow Christ perfectly? No. We, we, sometimes we giggle a little bit at how much they don't follow Jesus. And so, it, yeah, it isn't, det- it isn't determined based on their perfectness it's based on Christ's grace and their obedience to follow in light of the fact that they're never going to be perfect but they're going to be filled with a new heart to obey and to walk with God. That's not it. They're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone else who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many are who are first will be last. And the last will be first. You see already, last, first, least, greatest. This is a motif we see all throughout scripture that Jesus says, you need to do the things the way that I'm telling you to do the things because I'm God who has created a perfect creation, a perfect pattern for you to walk in. I've given you a new heart to walk in my ways the way that I have called you to. And I'm not even just telling you what to do. I'm giving you the power to do it through the new heart and the spirit that I put in you at salvation. So there you have it, everyone. Right? And so if you've left house or home or mother and brother or sister or father, right? if you will follow him, what he's saying. if you follow him, you're going to receive a hundredfold. Right? And I'm not even going to sit here and debate with you about the prosperity gospel. If you've been here more than three weeks, you know that we abhor any kind of prosperity gospel. But I'm saying that in the kingdom of heaven, there is real honor bestowed to those who would take seriously the word of God and apply it to their life and teach others to do the same. And on the opposite side of that, for those who won't, for those who mitigate or truncate or take away and diminish the law of Christ, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to get there. A lot like the passage we looked at in Corinthians a couple of weeks ago that says all the things that you do are going to be thrown into a fire. They're going to be burned up on the day of judgment, on the day even of the Bema Seat when you're before Christ. You're not going to go to hell, but you're there that all your works will be tested and they will be wiped out and what is left will be rewarded. But what is burnt is burnt. It's gone. In the same way, you see how that was just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about rewards. And here again, Jesus brings it up once again, which he will do quite a bit through the Sermon on the Mount. However, a word of warning for those who think they can manipulate their way into positions of honor. All you got to do is look a couple of verses down the road as the disciples were thinking about what Jesus had said about honor and position in the kingdom of heaven. They start trying to jockey for position on this side of eternity for some special honor, and they get their mom wound up in it. Like, what in the world's wrong with them, right? And they say this, Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is who? James and John. We're going to start doing more, like, trivia during church. We got to, you got to know these things. James and John came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something, and Jesus said to her, what do you want? <laughs> and she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty prestigious, right? That's an honor, right? That, I mean, to, you, I'd love that, you know? And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? that The suffering, all of those things that are about to happen for Christ to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> okay. And, and Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup. And, and they did, right? The disciples suffered and died for Christ. And he says, you will drink my cup as a matter of fact. Uh, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Even that, you just saw right there in the text as Jesus is explaining eternity that God is preparing honor for people to whom God has prepared it for, the people as are following Christ and living for him. Do you see that? I'm not even sitting here telling you where you're going to sit. I mean, your throne may be a toilet seat somewhere in the back. Okay, but what I'm saying, that's probably my seat. But the point of the matter, I just want you to see that Scripture just talks about it. It talks about it over and over again. It's not going to give you all the specifics. It's not, you, can't, you can't open up your heavenly retirement account and see that number moving, okay, that you, you may want to do. But the reality is when you get in here, it tells you so often. And then verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said to him, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And this is really what Jesus is getting to the heart of these disciples. Why did you even ask that? You asked that because you want to be an authority. You want to be the top dog. You want to be the person who's making all the decisions, calling all the shots, even in eternity. That's the wrong heart to have when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's going to be honor in heaven? Absolutely. There's going to be varying degrees of honor in heaven? Absolutely. But it's not going to be based on people who want to call the shots and make the rules. That's not how this is going to shake out. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus says. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So you want to see, you want to see some varying degrees of honor in heaven? Uh, if you want to have varying degrees of honor in heaven, you got to be least here. You know the problem with that concept? No one who wants to be great in heaven, who has a prideful, arrogant heart, will, will trade greatness here to be the least. Did you see that? You know who does that? Does that? <laughs> you know who does that? People with East Texas accents. No. Uh, you know who does that? people who have a new heart, people that Christ has uh, captured their lives and caused them to walk in his commandments, those are the people who aren't out to seek all of it for themselves in the here and now. They're going to submit, right? They're going to serve others. And then guess what Christ promises? That you will be honored and rewarded for your submission to me here as I've led you toward that. So you see that. There's no manipulation in it with, with rewards and honor in heaven. And Jesus is making it very clear. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. I mean, think about that. You really, think, you, you really want to have a heavenly mind? When you're thinking here, you can't have an earthly mind. Here, you're going to be on the lowest. But there is a promise of reward in heaven for those who are Faithful. And Jesus says, basically what you're going to do is you're going to reflect me. In verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ did the same thing, right? He's here. There's no one more lowly and no one more about serving others and God than Christ Jesus. But guess what? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And now he is exalted to the right hand of the Father on high and he is Lord of the universe. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be Christ. I'm not saying you're going to get... I'm just showing you the principles that we see throughout Scripture that are very clear, that show that the way that you live here has real eternal consequences there, not just before salvation, but even in your salvation. But according to Ezekiel 36, we live to obey Jesus because we have a new heart. We don't have any legalistic intentions, just a new heart for God in Christ, with our hearts set on eternity. And that, my friends, is the end of the law for Christians in Christ. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for, for this. I, mean, I know weighty, I mean heavy stuff, a lot, lot of things in the text. We, we trust that as we do expository teaching, that we go verse by verse, it's gonna, it's gonna enlighten us to a whole lot of things that we've never really thought about too much. That it's gonna bring us to passages that we gotta wrestle with. It's gonna bring us to passages that'll wrestle our hearts to obedience to you. And I pray that as we do that, that as we're faithful to the text, as we are faithful uh, to follow you, God, that uh, God, it's gonna lead to so much fruit, so much advancement of the gospel here. And, and to understand that even the way we live here should in a real way uh, compel us to think about eternity, it should compel our minds and our hearts and our thoughts towards our eternity with you. And even as we look at following all of your commands, not with fear of condemnation, there's no condemnation. Perfect love casts out fear there is no fear for us that we would not be in, in your presence for eternity with complete joy and complete happiness with no tear and no stain of sin because we have no condemnation but, the, but to realize and understand that our life choices here how we handle your word how we teach other people about your word has real eternal consequences and we should not forget that we should think about that as we look to your word and as we take it seriously to apply it to our lives and to help others understand and know you We thank you. We pray Christ in all of these prayers in his name.